watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here, Here comes, comes the binge. binge. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest movie theater releases. I am Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte, and this week for you we have four movies. Star Wars The Last Jedi, Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, and Wonder Wheel. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being our highest rating. Consume in moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And Send It Back means... Life is too short for that mess. Jason, it's been a minute. It has. Guys, this is the first time that Rebecca and I have been together taping a new episode since before Thanksgiving. Mm. Uh, so it's been about three weeks or so, and, and, and we've had a lot of things happen uh in our lives since then uh, we've, we've seen the world mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. you just got back from london i did yeah i went to uh i went to london uh, i went to paris for the weekend when i was there oh, i didn't even know that mm-hmm. it oh. was very cold but it was wonderful mm. um i went to uh the museum of medieval art like uh the nerd that i am mm. um did you and... buy anything in the gift shop get a little of course i did get a little suit of armor for the road uh no i almost did that um no, I just, you know, it's got, I got a laminated map of the um, medieval knight orders. <laughs> Did you hang it up on the ceiling over your bed? Uh, not yet. Not yet. I need to find the right thumbtacks. In between all those glow-in-the-dark stars. <laughs> oh, God. Did you read Cat Person? <laughs> not yet, Did no. you read? Oh, okay. No. Um, we'll save that for a different time then. Okay. Put a pin in that. Um, but, yeah, so um, I came back on Tuesday. I was supposed to come back on Sunday, um, but my flight was canceled it was just it was absolutely the worst flight experience you could ever imagine i you know i first of all i was late to the to my plane so Mm -hmm. late that um like i had to like cut in line and and run like full-on run uh sweating then i get there i'm on a track record of being late for planes yeah you know what that's that's a that's a completely new thing something to work on for 2018 yeah i'm usually like a two hours eat You know, have a drink. Mm-hmm. I you buy a magazine I don't need. You gotta nip this in the bud when it's still just starting. I need to stop it. Um, so then I finally get there, super sweaty, and then I spend the next five hours on the plane because they're trying to de-ice it, and then it, the steering five doesn't work. Hours? Okay, it was like four. Still, um, that's a lot. They had to like pull the train, uh, pull the plane back. Well, here's the thing: it was a train. I guess that was the problem. Um, no, they had to pull the plane back to the gate. Hey, where are the wings in this thing? <laughs> Why is it going so slow? Um, they had to pull it back so that the engineers could get on so they could basically reboot the plane. Then they put us back in, because then it started to smell like fumes, so they put oh. us back into the waiting area. And oh. then at that point, um, you couldn't go in and out to use the restroom because it was like a secured area and people were starting to freak out. Oh, no. And then we had to wait for our luggage for, it was like longer than two hours. And then at one point, they were like, if you don't need it tonight, you can just leave it here. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to leave it there. Oh, my God. So I left for the airport at like noon and I got back to um, my partner's house at like 10 um oh, which was great because i had a place to stay and i got some more time which was wonderful <laughs> but overall it was there, it wasn't weird where you were like we already said goodbye and we had our like farewell hugs and everything and sweetness like, and you're like i'm back and she's like oh hi. <laughs> like i made plans <laughs> <laughs> really busy yeah. <laughs> um no it was not like that <laughs> Um, but like I, you know what? I can't imagine a worse flight experience. It was just miserable, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Uh, and you were also recently traveling. How was your flight experience? Uh-huh. Uh, it was uh, also not terrific. 
uh, but in two sort of like comically opposite ways. So on the way there, guys, I was just in Sydney. I was there for work and I was able to go um, through work, which meant that I was able to fly business class, mm. which is always a really nice thing because you're actually treated like a human being, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which is, you know, worth its weight in gold. Um, but uh, so I had a few little mishaps on the way to Sydney. Uh, first, for instance, I had booked Virgin Australia because I was told that they had the best business class, and then it turned out the flight was being operated by Delta. No, which was such a boner killer. I'm like, oh, this is so ugly. Where's my mood lighting? <laughs> and um, then a purple lamp in sight. And then they forced all the economy passengers to walk through business class after we were already seated, and I felt oh. I felt so ashamed of myself, and so I already felt terrible. And then like the flight attendant. Would she would just walk up to me, literally block the economy traffic. The row would stop and pile up. She would bend over and extend a tray of champagne. And then that's the, living in the slowest voice. She would say, "Champagne, orange juice, mimosa." And I'm, and I'm like, "Champagne, I'll take, I'll, take, I'll, take, I'll take champagne. I'll take champagne. Thanks, thank you." And she's like, "Not ready for a mimo." I'm like, "No, I'm just champagne's fine. Thank you very much." And I like, she like shield my face from like the other passengers as they're like glaring at me, walking by. Um, and then just when I thought I couldn't feel like any more of an asshole, uh, she walked over again, once again blocked all the traffic of the economy passengers, and said in in a too loud voice. Uh, Hello, sir. I just wanted to let you know that we did receive your request for a gluten-free dinner, and we will be sure that you do have your needs met. And I'm like, just kill me. Uh, Fucking that's kill amazing. me. So I felt deeply ashamed. Um, but, uh, I but, mean, with the mimosa or with the champagne, it does sound like you had a pretty great flight experience, though. Well, that's the thing. You know, it was a shame that, you know, like they were like, setting me up in, in my luxury. You know, I want to have my luxury away from the prying eyes of the world. I don't want to have to mm, have it play out, play out on the, the stage. Yeah, with the plebes. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be on a Real Housewives show where I'm flaunting my, you know, my, my wealth. I've only once been bumped up to first class, and it was from a really short flight from San Francisco to L.A. And um, you're like, give me everything. <laughs> well, they, they did the thing where they offered right. me champagne, and like my my reaction to that was like, everybody knows I don't belong here. Everyone knows I didn't buy this ticket myself. They could just see it on me. Don't act too eager. Be chill. Don't 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 start like shoving champagne into my jacket for later. Just Suddenly be cool. You, you like bust out your like beer helmet and like. <laughs> Fill it in, fill in the whole little like knapsack filled Lucky with champagne. Look that fits into my carry-on. You're like, just duck it in, just, just in this little funnel <laughs> right here. What else do you have? If you it's can like... just... Yeah. Um... Butter, play pats, and all <laughs> sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, yeah, the first, the first time that I, I also had a similar kind of like, they can tell, they can tell I'm you not used to this. You can smell it on me. Right, yeah. I belong in C45F. <laughs> exactly. They're like, mm, it's cute. You put lipstick on a pig, okay? <laughs> <It's> uh like... <laughs> What are you, a sick or something? <laughs> what, they give you this as a charity? Yeah. Uh, so on the way back from Sydney, first off, it was off to a pretty rough start because I accidentally left my driver's license and my debit card on top of a train terminal ticket Ooh, stop. That does sound tough. In downtown Sydney. Didn't realize it until I was in security at the airport. So that was terrible. Get on the plane. You had your passport, though? I did have my passport. And now I get to be that guy who uses his passport at bars mm. uh, until my appointment at the DMV in like a month and a half. 
Um, but so, uh, but you know, fortunately for this flight back, they used the correct door uh, for loading passengers. Where like, if you're in like the front, you get to go to the left, and if you're in the back, you go to the right. So I'm like, cool, I can avoid that embarrassment. So I'm thinking, I am set now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the flight left Sydney around like 12:40 p.m. and around four or 4:30, they started um, to uh, to uh, simulate nighttime to start to get us onto like the night schedule mm-hmm. of California. And so I like pop an Ambien, pass out for a few hours, wake up around 7.30 or 8, um, kind of like, oh, am I awake now? Should I take a second one? Take a second one. Then I go back down a little bit and woken up by an announcement over the PA system asking it, that any doctors or paramedics on the plane report to the second row. I'm in the fifth row. Uh, so, and I'm on the window aisle. And so for business class, there's like, yeah, please oh, explain it to me because I don't know. There's so there, there are like these little pods basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a row of pods on each window and then two rows together in the middle. Okay. And so I'm on the left window and I look diagonal across from me at this, um, seat in the middle in the second row. And I just see all these people standing around sort of giving medical attention to someone who I can't see because the back of his pod chair is blocking him. And I'm too ambient and a number of McAllen's in at this point. So I'm just kind of watching, like trying to make sense of what I'm seeing. And, uh, and I see a lot of the very vigorous, vigorous resuscitation going on. And, uh, and I see like flight attendants sort of like, you know, coming and going and, and and at one point, I become aware of a of an of, of an older woman standing on the other side of this pod, sort of like looking down at what's happening. And I'm thinking at first that she's just a concerned passenger, uh, but then just somehow in my mind it snaps into focus that like this is the wife of the person that this is happening to. Oh. And um, and so I, I I could never see the person that they were working on. Um, but it, it's, it went on for a pretty long time and I didn't really know what to do. Uh, I was, you know, it seemed like they had everything they needed. And so I just kind of would occasionally close my eyes and, and, and succumb back to the ambient. And eventually I woke up again and the lights were all dark and no one was around and it seemed like it had resolved. So I noticed a flight attendant walking around from person to person and, um, and smiling and chatting lightheartedly. And then he like dropped by my seat and he was like, Hey there. I'm like, hi. And he's like, just wanted to check and see how, how everyone's doing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm like, is that, like, I said uh, no mimosa. <laughs> like, don't look at me. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm okay. Um, is, that, is that person okay? And he's like, oh, no, he did pass. I'm like, oh. Was that, is that, uh, was that his wife? And he's like, yeah, that is his wife. Oh, and he's like, you know, we have about five hours still left to go on the flight. And, uh, you know, we are over the Pacific. And so, um, you know, whenever we land, uh, you know, we'll have the, the, you know, the medical professionals come on board and, 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 you know, assess the situation. But, uh, he's like, but yes, if you see, you know, Dorothy, he told me her name was, if you see Dorothy, you know, just like give her your condolences. And I'm like, okay. And, uh, and then I'm just kind of like look over at this man's seat and I see, you know, his legs with the blanket over them. And, uh, and, uh, and then it starts to kind of hit me 
that I'm about to spend the next five hours with a dead body just lying there uh, a few feet from me under a blanket while a woman who got on the plane with one life uh, and then lost that life uh, in the middle of the flight is just sitting there next to the body. Uh, so I think it was probably a, a, a huge blessing that I had taken to Ambien. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and the alcohol that I did consume because I was so sort of disoriented. Yeah, but we had to, so, you know, I was able to, to, to pass back out for a few hours and then, you know, woke up at one point and, and had to go to the bathroom and to do that, I had to walk past him. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, see him again on the way back to my seat and then I pass out again, and then I was woken when the lights came on, and they announced, like, breakfast service. And then they serve breakfast around the body. Um, just, uh, here are your eggs, here's your French toast. And there's just a dead body laying there. Yeah, so that was, and I kind of was in shock, and I didn't know I was in shock. Uh, when we landed, you know, they just over the PA were like, you know, everyone, we did have a medical situation during the flight, so please remain seated with your seatbelts fastened until we dismiss you. We just need to have some some authorities come on and assess the situation. And so then we land, and we just have to sit there with our seatbelts on while, like, some guys come in and, like, take the blanket off the body and, like, check the vitals and confirm that it's dead. And uh, and then they let us off the plane. Did they leave him there while you guys got off the plane? Yeah. Uh, so I was very I was very nervous. I was going to have to watch them actually, like, load the body mm-hmm, yeah. on, on to, you know, to take it out and watch the widow walk out with it and... And, you know, I didn't have to do that. Uh, did And did Dorothy stay there in her seat the yeah, whole time? Yeah. Were there other people around you that you, like, I didn't get to talk to exchanged? anyone. No. Um, I think that we were all in silence. And it was like this weird private nightmare that we all experienced up there mm-hmm. behind the curtain and no one else saw. And, uh, and then we all just sort of, like, walked off the plane together and just, like, walked in silence through customs and and waited for our bags and went our separate ways and uh and i didn't realize until like six hours later maybe that i had been in shock the entire day about it and uh and and didn't know like yeah i just hadn't experienced that before and i am just thankful that like i mean and i've just been keeping like dorothy in my thoughts and prayers since then for sure and i didn't get to meet her say anything to her but i can see her face in my mind very clearly Mm -hmm. and um and, you know, I'm just thankful that also, you know, I wouldn't say that I have like tons of issues around like death and bodies and things like that, but I can only imagine like oh. if, if you did. And then also if you were in a seat where that was like directly in your eye, like if you were like right across from him and you had to watch like, and just be aware of this body laying there under a blanket for five hours, like you could need like emergency, emergency therapy. Uh, from that kind of thing. Yeah, that would easily lead to a panic attack. Oh, yeah. Something. Yeah. I'm amazed that there wasn't more of that kind of... I didn't... You know, no one... Everyone was just really subdued. No one was screaming. No one was crying. No one was hyperventilating. Everyone was just, I think, in denial and shock and couldn't really process what had happened. So... Uh, yeah, so that was... Uh, that was a huge surprise and uh, put all the other little foibles into perspective that had occurred um throughout my other flight experience sydney was great (laughs) so so um but did your flight get delayed at all um nope Hmm. okay well you know (laughs) 
<laughs> so all things considered, yours was worse. <laughs> I'm gonna say that, but you know, if you think so, if you think so. Um, so with um, the fragility of life clear in our sights, let's talk about movies. Let's do it. Um, the wow. first movie we're going to discuss this week is Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Rey develops her newly discovered abilities with the guidance of Luke Skywalker, who is unsettled by the strength of her powers. Meanwhile, the Resistance prepares to do battle with the First Order. Reach out. What do you see? Light. Darkness. Balance. It's so much bigger. Star Wars: the Last Jedi. Um, have you seen the the last two? I have, yeah. But by the last two, you mean The Force Awakens and Rogue One. Wow, okay. Yeah, you know the names. I get it. Because <laughs> uh... I mean, Rogue One, to be clear, is not part of the trilogy. Rogue One was a Star Wars story. But yeah, that so that has that does not directly tie into the timeline of this movie. Did I say trilogy? <laughs> yeah, I said last two. Did I stutter? <laughs> um, right. So it's um, it's trilogy movie, standalone movie, trilogy movie, standalone movie for the next so many years then until they hundreds get over of there. Years. Yeah, yeah, hundreds of thousands. Yup. Um, so I can see this one with that, even though I haven't seen the last one. I saw the last one two ago. <laughs> Uh, Do you know the names? Um, okay, so this is the episode of Girls where <laughs> have you do you follow the account? <laughs> Clearly, I haven't seen this movie. Do you follow the account? Lena Dunham apologizes on Twitter. No, it's really amazing. I highly recommend it. And that's my review of Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Um, people are loving this. Jason, did you fall in love with this movie as well? No. Oh, it doesn't have all the heart that people are saying it has. You know, I think that this is something that... I think it's a movie that's really delivering for the fans. Mm. Um, but of which you are not? No, not really. Okay. Um, I've never been a Star Wars person. And um, and so I I loved The Force Awakens. J.J. Mm-hmm. Abrams just has a touch where he can make these like giant... He can reboot these like sci-fi mega franchises in a way that people who don't care about them will still love them. Like I loved his Star Trek loved his star trek and i loved the force awakens um this one by necessity um you know gets a little bit you know ryan johnson is the writer and director this time around who previously made brick and looper Mm -hmm. and um, all those big hits (laughs) right yeah it was a little surprising that they gave him the keys for this one but uh you know it has to the first one was just like this you know really just adrenaline jolt of pure fun um, that just sort of, you know, sets all this, this new sort of, um, you know, mythology into place and updates it and gives us the update on where everyone is and who these people are and mm. new characters, new creatures. Um, this one, you know, has to get a bit more into it just, you know, it's, more, it's, a, bit, it's a bit darker. Uh, it's a bit less fun. Um, there's still a lot of humor in it. Uh, but, and also I wanted to say, um, you know, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're not one of the people who is especially super, super intense around spoilers around this. I know that few, few movies inspire more spoiler fear than the new Star Wars films. Yeah. And, um, and so like, I'm not going to say any big spoilers, but I will be saying things about some things that happen in the movie. So if you don't want to hear that, then skip ahead. 
Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, it gets a bit darker. Um, it, it's more, I was going to say it's more about the plot, except for the plot itself is actually like, there's not a whole lot to it. Like the main conflict of the plot here, it actually happens. It kind of plays off in a pretty short period of time. So what we have here is we have the first order, uh, which is sort of like the evil ruling power. And if you... That lo- sounds unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And there's a thing called the resistance. No. Yes. And uh, and if you... I'm going to misstate a lot of things in this review, I'm sure, in terms of what the, these things are actually called, because I don't know. Um, but uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, so there's the, first, there's the first order in the resistance. I know that much. And, uh, and as the film is beginning, the first order is trying to, you know, eliminate the resistance altogether. Uh, they want to, you know, snuff out the last of the Jedi's so they can, you know, fully have control over, you know, the galaxy. And, uh, and so they, uh, so they sort of destroy, uh, the base of the resistance and then the survivors are just on their, you know, spaceship, uh, <laughs> hurtling through space, trying to get away um, and preserve the last of the resistance and find a new place to set up a base. Exploring strange new worlds, uh, well, new lives and new civilizations. Except for except for they don't get that far. Because, Boldly going, we're no, sorry, wrong one. Because the 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 big the big like nerd quandary in this is that uh, there's been an a, an advance on the technological side of the first order where they can now track the uh, resistance through light speed. So that is meant to be like, a, oh no, kind of moment when, uh, when, that ha- when that comes up in the movie. So can you just break that down for me technically? Um, when you say through light speed, yeah. do you mean that when they're traveling at light speed, they can still be tracked? Or are they using light speed as a mechanism with which to track? When they're traveling at light speed, they can still be tracked now. As opposed to before, where that was their like, surefire way to like, lose them. Mm. Um, but now, uh, whenever they do light speed and they're just like now comfortably cruising in the new wherever the hell they are, um, oops, nope, first order is right there. Um, so they're like, fuck! Uh, so they're trying to figure out how, what to do about that now that, that there's been that compromise. And um, there, there are a lot of, there's like sort of a string of attacks that, that gradually eliminate more and more and more of the resistance. And, uh, and then meanwhile, Ray, Daisy Ridley, is still where we left her at the end of the last movie, where she is with Luke Skywalker. Mm. Um, and she begins trying to persuade him to return um, because he is, as far as anyone knows, the last of the Jedis. And, uh, and they need him to come and help and be, be a symbol of the resistance and to give hope because what they need is hope. It's all very Harvey Milk. You got to give him hope. Um, but he is over it. He is not interested and uh, and so there's sort of like a lengthy process of her trying to talk him into it, but also he's like this wise old sage now, very grizzled, wears robes, things like that. And so he's I'm getting the, an Obama vibe here. Yeah, yeah, I think that we've all yeah we we would all be that person like you know trekking up that 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 rocky mountain like offering a lightsaber to Obama like please come back, mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you doing? Please help um so uh but yeah so she has a lot to learn from him as well and there's a whole bunch of backstory around like why he went away why he sort of like went into the self-imposed exile 
um, and a lot of that. It's all those sexual allegations. <laughs> you, just, you know, you just, you can't, you got to go. You just got to take you yourself out of You saw Matt Lauer go down and he, he was like, like nope. I'm taking myself, I'm, I'm pulling a Morgan Spurlock. I'm going to preemptively <laughs> just put this out there and then I'm going to skadooch. Like, no one even asked you, Morgan. <laughs> no, I was like, he, I'm like, if you, I'm like, I appreciate this, the spirit of why you did that. Right. But if you weren't on the record as such an intention whore, Right, um, right. Then they're maybe like, we actually was... can't find anyone can confirm your stories. <laughs> oh God! Oh boy. Um. So, uh, yeah, and backstory that he has around why he left, which involves Kylo Ren, mm. Adam Driver's character, who, of course, as we learned in the last movie, was the son of Han Solo and Princess Leia, uh, who went over to the dark side. How do they approach the Princess Leia situation? So, uh, Carrie Fisher did survive to complete her filming on this. Oh. Uh, so there's no like CG. I don't know if they had any like things in post they need to do, but um, mm. but uh, but there's no. They didn't have to like construct any of her scenes from the ashes or whatever, um, so to speak. But you know, she is the unfortunate thing is that it, it's now especially clear. There were rumors that are confirmed by this movie that something happened to her character where she was basically out of commission for the whole middle act. That is true. Uh, she is in a coma for the second act of the movie, and um, and so mm. there, so there, and uh, so and uh, during which she is relieved, she's relieved of her, of her position because she's General Leia now. Mm-hmm, right. She's relieved of her position by Admiral Holdo, who's played by Laura Dern. Oh. And oh man, oh man, when she shows up with her purple hair, uh, and her sort of like sleeveless turtleneck. Uh, it is it is the treat of treats like i felt like it was a bone that i needed to have thrown to me to like keep me engaged Mm -hmm. uh because laura dern makes everything better and uh and is just marvelous in this and she gets to have a really really kick-ass scene toward the end but so anyway leia's in a coma and uh and it's tough to see that because at first when this thing happens to her, you think, and this is all t- toward the end of the first act, you think that she has died at first. And I was like sitting there, I just like got chills. I'm like, oh God, is this how that, maybe they like redid it. Maybe they like re, where they went back and just were like, okay, we need to kill her in this movie. Um, because that way we can just like get out ahead of it and be like, Leia died. Um, but, uh, but no, she is, she turns out not to be dead in that scene, but you do have to see her like on a, on a stretcher Mm. being rushed through like a hospital, like a space hospital (laughs) and (laughs) not only a hospital, but a space hospital. No, (laughs) no zero gravity. Everyone's just flailing around. Um, which is how it happened in real life. mm -hmm. So space hospital. Yeah. Um, and oh, Going back to my story. Oh, jeez. Never mind. Go, skip ahead. No, skip no, ahead. No, 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 no. Because I, I was, while I was on that flight right before that happened, I watched the final episode of last season of Catastrophe. Um, oh. And that's the only episode that she's on. And then it was when she was coming back from that that she died on oh, an airplane, airplane. Or at least, you know, went into the, the condition that led her to dying while she was on the airplane. But anyway, so she, uh, so she's out of, out of play for a big chunk of the, the middle of the movie. Comes back in the end. Every time that she says goodbye to someone in this movie, mm. you just want to cry. Mm-hmm. Like her and Laura Dern have a very tearful farewell scene toward the end of the movie. Um, and uh, and then Leia and Luke also have a very emotional oh kind of like farewell scene. And uh, and it is it is tough to watch. And, and, you know, and Carrie Fisher, uh, you know, she gets to have a little bit more fun in this movie than the first. She gets to have a few sort of like more Carrie Fisher feeling kind of sassy lines. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, I mean, she, I mean, her voice is so scorched. 
Um, and you, you can certainly, when you watch her, you feel the, the full weight of every choice that she ever made, you know, in her life playing, you know, coming to bear. Um, but, you know, she, but with that, you know, she just brought that, there's the gravity of her, just of her presence in mm-hmm. the movie. And it just, it sucks because it's clear that, like, the rumors were true. And not only was she out of commission for part of this story, but it sets it up for the third movie to basically be entirely about her. No. Um, oh. Like, the first movie was about Han. This one was about Luke. And the third one was going to be about her. Because, of course, it would end with her because she was the heart of the whole thing. Um, and so now, like, you know, no one no, no one knows what the next one's going to be. I mean, I guess, you know, the writers do. But... Um, you know, what they had in mind, uh, you know, she, by the end of this movie, Leia is still alive and, uh, you know, and they, you know, they do have a, 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 over the credits says, you know, like for our princess Carrie, um, you know, and it's, yeah, it's, it's just hard, you know, it's hard, yeah. it's hard to, to watch her and to have to relive those horrible few days at the end of December last year where we lost her and her mom and George Michael and just all those terrible things that happened at the end of that terrible, terrible year. So it kind of takes you back to all that. Um, it's always hard. I remember what movie it was, but it was a movie I wasn't expecting to see. Um, oh my God, what's his name? Uh, it was a movie I wasn't expecting to see Alan Rickman in after oh, he had passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you you know you hear his um, recognizable voice, yeah. and it's that's such a weird feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. To to know that you know something that the, this person when they were captured didn't know. Yeah, yeah, that's always yeah, that's how I felt. You know, especially watching her on catastrophe, knowing that this mm-hmm. is like literally the final days of her life. Right. Um. But uh. But so she's. But she's. You know, she's great, and she's still like. You know, it's a good solid note for for her to go out on with this movie. And how about the how about the uh, the kids, John Boyega, Daisy Ridley, and uh, yeah. Adam Driver? How are they doing? And uh, and also, let's not forget your favorite pseudo, your favorite questionably Latin actor. Oh, Oscar Isaac. <laughs> Oscar Isaac. <laughs> For those who haven't heard, I'm Rebecca has been dubious. Birther, <laughs> only for us. Rebecca is not willing to recognize his uh, his ethnicity. <laughs> She's not letting him in the club. Uh, I feel like it. You should, you, I don't know. It, should, it shouldn't be a given. <laughs> Yo, you shouldn't just be able to say a thing <laughs> and have it be true. Um, so Daisy Ridley has a lot less to do this time she had as a she's a lot more one note because she was such a she was such a revelation such a star making performance in the first one a lot more limited this time John Boyega has uh, has more to do in some ways because he was kind of sidelined in the first movie for Mm -hmm. stretches of it Um, he's great he's paired with an actress named Kelly Marie Tran uh, who is uh, uh, who plays uh, a character named Rose and the two of them are sort of on this mission together um, we have a lot more Oscar Isaac in this movie, which is a treat, um, because <laughs> he was also gone for most of the first movie. And I think he, he's the one that we thought was dead in the first movie. There's yes, like an accident yeah. toward the beginning and you're like, oh no, Poe died. But no, um, Oscar Isaac is in a lot more of this, just smoldering the screen up. Wearing that weird hat? And no, no, just this gorgeous, gorgeous hair. Um, it's funny. I was wa- watching, good hair. watching this movie. It occurred to me that like. These the Star Wars movies in general, um, and it, it's true of the new ones as well. A bunch of lookers, not a bunch of lookers, actually opposite. Um, you think Harrison Ford was? That's a looker? the thing. Harrison Ford was a looker of the original ones, and Oscar Isaac is the looker of the new ones. But otherwise, yeah. Yeah, people these right. are these are not a lot of like conventionally attractive people. You're not a Chewy fetishist. <laughs> well, I'm talking about the people. Um, obviously, Chewy is a sex god, but. 
so, uh, but yeah, so it, it, it's interesting that Star Wars, despite being like the biggest movie franchise in history, doesn't subscribe to the usual Hollywood wisdom that you need to have the most beautiful people um, to make, you know, the biggest profitable movie. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. But, uh, but yeah, and there's also, yeah, Adam Driver is great. He does have, much has already been made of the fact that he has a shirtless scene. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those of us who haven't seen his big, weird, dumb torso <laughs> since girls get to once again be acquainted with his, like, strangely broad chest. Yeah, how can someone be so so lanky and so uh, broad at the same time? It boggles. It boggles the mind. He's a paradox, if you will. Yes. Um, he's very good in this movie. He's very good. It's, we, we, there's a lot of development with the character of Kylo Ren. Um, he isn't he isn't just sort of like sulk around the way he did the first movie. That's inspiring that great emo Kylo Ren um, Twitter account. Oh right. Yes, but I uh, know the kid the kids are the kids are there the kids and now the kids the kids really are the future now um, mm. because uh, because you know it's gonna Teach be them well. it's gonna be their movie um, come 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 the next one. What are you gonna give this one? Um, to me, it's a consumer moderation. Ooh, ooh, uh, ooh. because exciting I, words. Because yeah, I mean, by the end of the night, I honestly couldn't even remember very much about it. Like it wasn't very memorable to me. Okay. Um, but there were also, and I, I, and as I said, I'm not a fan, and I come at this as an outsider, and all I can say is that the Force Awakens really captured me and captivated me, and the Last Jedi, my mind wandered a lot, um, mm. especially in the middle stretch. It's two and a half hours long. It doesn't need to be two and a half hours long. And there were some things about it that I didn't even get were references to earlier films because, again, not a fan. Mm. I had a friend telling me last night that like these very pivotal things that happened toward the end were nods toward the beginning of the whole series. I was like, oops, I shouldn't be the one reviewing this. But, uh, but here I am, and I am reviewing it as a non-fan. So with all those disclaimers, to me, it's a consumer moderation because it just wasn't as fun or entertaining as the first one. Uh uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi is rated PG-13 for sequences of sci-fi action violence um, and scenes of space hospital. Um, that brings us to movie number two, Call Me By Your Name, which is our pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick, pick, pick is the pick, pick of the week. It's the summer of 1983, and precocious 17-year-old Elio is spending the days with his family at their 17th century villa in northern Italy. He soon meets Oliver, a handsome doctoral student who's working as a research assistant for Elio's father. Amid the sun-drenched splendor of their surroundings, Elio and Oliver discover an awakening desire over the course of a summer that will alter their lives forever. All to see without my eyes The first time that you Is there anything you don't know? Boundless by the time I cry You only knew how little I know about the things that matter Build your walls around what things that matter? White noise, what an awful sound. You know what things. You saying what I think you're saying? Feel my feet above the ground. You shouldn't have said anything. And Just pretend you never did. Nature has cunning ways of finding our weakest spot. Well, that was beautiful, wasn't it, Rebecca? <laughs> it sure was, Jason. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It sure, it sure was, maggot. <laughs> if we're trying to be real with the way you talk to me. Uh, that's off mic. That's off mic. Um, first of all, that's not John Hamm in this. In this. It's Army Hammer. Yes, it is Army Hammer. I feel like in the time that since we've seen this movie, we saw it a couple of weeks ago. 
Um, we're reviewing it now because it's when it comes out in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But uh, there has been a whole roller coaster of think pieces about Army Hammer from absolute devotion and love, uh, interviews about him uh, and the director making this movie and their intense relationship, his re- intense relationship with um, with the story, um, all the way to the inevitable internet backlash to that, which is w- articles about, no, oh, Army Hammer finally got his after trying so hard. Oh, right, and the like, BuzzFeed thing. Like, how many chances does a, does a mediocre white man get to have before he we just give up on him or whatever? Right, yeah, that. Um, and then cut to now where we are just thinking about how we didn't elect a pedophile for uh, uh, government again yeah. again so uh so really that puts you know like uh, army hammer think pieces into perspective <laughs> the theme of this week's episode is perspective <laughs> um at the end of the day army hammer is 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 just a handsome actor and uh, and with this film he gets to give a a, a richer more fully realized performance than ever before um, I came away with this uh, expecting to be on Team Hammer, um, but left on Team Chalamet. Yes. By uh, a long shot. Yes. Um, so let's talk about what happens in this movie. Yeah. Um, would you like? Would you like to go? Sure. Well, I mean, you covered a lot of it in the uh, in the summary, uh, but yeah. So uh, it's just about the seventeen year old boy. Uh, who is living a life of unimaginable privilege. Um, mm. This this villa is so gorgeous and they have a staff and his parents his father is um is a professor and academic of uh, of like classical art and, and also linguistics. like linguistics his mom is just like a gorgeous french italian woman the family picture picture this picture this you're summering with your family on the uh the villa that they've inherited and it's raining, and your, um, you know, your father asks you some quizzy games about like what are the, um, what's the etymology with, with, of, of words of, of, of apricot. And while your mother reads you um, a French story that she translates into German <laughs> on the fly to put you to sleep, you know, summer vacation. You guys, you guys have all gone on summer vacation with your parents. No, you didn't get into the back of a fucking Ford Taurus exactly. and drive Go down to, to Cedar Point, <laughs> yeah, Myrtle Beach, with a bunch of other white nonsense. <laughs> Bloated Ohioans. I would have hated Ilio so much if he was in my high school. I spent I so much time him. being just jealous of this movie. I feel like it tainted my experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, we were definitely those passengers glaring at me in business class watching this yeah, movie. Yeah, we were. But little did we know what was actually happening in business class. Yeah, exactly. Um, and but, at the uh, end of this movie, it even gets worse. Yeah. But, but uh, we'll get there. But, Sorry. You know, but Elio is... Uh, but yeah, so he is... The family constantly switches back and forth. The, con- the family speaks English, French, and Italian um, interchangeably. Um, Ilio also is a, is a pianist, and he you know he transcribes music and is always playing the piano and, and just 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 pretentious. But you have to all you have to put all that aside uh, to to go on this journey with him. And you know it it is difficult not to envy him. And you know it's also his parents as like academics and Europeans and everything are like incredibly incredibly open and affirming and everything so every every beautiful italian girl in town oh, yeah. wants wants him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so real tough time for ilio uh but anyway so then army hammer shows up as oliver and uh and ilio at first um really dislikes oliver um you know oliver has a lot of has sort of a swagger to him he's very confident ilio as a teenage boy is feeling very gangly and unsure of himself 
And, um, and so he, and he thinks that Oliver is making fun of him, that Oliver hates him. And so they have a very adversarial relationship um, for the first act of the film. I thought that, I thought this movie did a good job of um, portraying Oliver as this um, incredibly American person without mm. it being too obvious. Yeah. Um, even from the way he, when he first arrives and the way he consumes breakfast, mm-hmm. he like, you know, voraciously starts to... There, yeah, there, yeah, we have a lot of stuff about Oliver's appetite. He can, Yeah, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it reminds me a bit of like fetish vor content where it's like he just consumes things around him in this way or just anytime you've ever watched me eat yeah that is uh yeah start always jarring really mm-hmm. hard to watch yeah um but yeah so it's it's not this um american in a way where it is you know they're, they're making fun of him necessarily but it's but the, the way the contrast of how they all interact with each other and the way they interact with the world mm-hmm. um is is apparent yeah yeah uh, and, uh, and so, uh, I- I- Ilio is tasked with sort of showing Oliver around. They have a different assistant come every summer. So it's not the first time they've, they've mm-hmm. had assistants every summer who come and work with the dad for six weeks. Um, and so for Elio at first, it's just business as usual, but since Oliver is so handsome, he is immediately, he sort of catches the eye, not only of Ilio, but of all, all of the Italian girls, uh, of everyone, you know, they call him a movie star, uh, you know, so everyone's sort of like smitten with him and Elio is sort of threatened by him. And so they have a very sort of almost like sibling rivalry that starts toward the beginning. Um, but, uh, but Elio, uh, is, is quite blindsided by the realization that he actually is attracted to Oliver. And, um, and, uh, and then sort of through a very gradual slow burn, um, getting to know you, uh, uh, uh storyline, it you know comes about that the feeling is actually mutual, and uh, and so Elio and Oliver uh, start to sort of fall into a bit of an affair during this this very relatively brief period that they get to sort of coexist in the same space. Uh, Oliver is very resistant uh, at first. He really uh, tries to. He does not put down any sort of like it's it's Elio who first approaches Oliver. Mm-hmm. And uh, with sort of an admission through coded language that you heard in the clip that we played for you, mm-hmm. and um, and then Elio starts to sort of like make a play for Oliver, and he, Oliver is very resistant, but then he kind of succumbs. And this is as good a time as any to address the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. which is the age difference. Uh, Elio is uh, seventeen, and in the book, uh, Oliver is meant to be twenty-four. Oh, um, but and Army Hammer, I believe, is only like twenty nine or thirty, and Timothy Chalamet is like twenty two. So the age difference is not still so off. But two things to know: well, one th- main thing to know is that the age of consent in Italy is fourteen, and so this is not by any means illegal. Uh, but also, I think the biggest problem—I think people wouldn't have a problem with it as much as they do, in to the extent that anyone is talking about this, if not for the fact that Timothy Chalamet looks like a boy mm-hmm. and army hammer looks like a man mm-hmm. and that yeah. gets back to him basically being the same kind of person physically as john ham like <laughs> these, these are both these are both men who have looked like they were 38 since they were 12 right it's like um i mean john ham has that like permanent five o'clock shadow thing going mm-hmm. on as well but army hammer like even in this even the outdoor scenes in this movie um he looks like a fucking giant yeah like he's, he's like well he is he's like six Five, I think he takes up entire doorways mm-hmm. he's so he's so big and like like he has a strong jaw and he just looks so strong and you're right Timothy Chalamet is like so slight yeah he's um, like, he hairless 
looks looks like he could be 12. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he has no chest hair. Which is he also, has, yeah. I think we talked a little bit about this, um, how much it mirrors, you know, his father works so much with, like, uh, classical architecture. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm sorry, with classical sculpture. Right. And um, and he looks like a like a, like a like a piece from antiquity. He does. Antiquity. He looks quite specifically like one piece in the film that's, that they find in a lake mm-hmm. that they surface. And there's a there's a callback moment where um, Elio and Oliver are crouched over this this sculpture of like sort of a nubile teen boy um, and with the exact hair and nose that Elio has. And they show Oliver lean over and run his thumb over its mouth. And then he does that exact same thing to Elio in the first scene where they uh, are physically intimate. Now, this is something that you would notice if, you, if you've seen this movie um, how many times? I've seen it four times. Okay. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, I've seen it four times the, between September and earlier this week. The age difference, um, I think that, you know, you, you brought it up in the right after talking about how Elio is definitely the, the pursuer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an important part of the story as well. It doesn't feel predatory at all. It feels right. very... Um, feels very genuine and innocent mm-hmm. um because it's a story of first love right at the end of the day with this what call me by your name is is just a really gorgeously rendered chronicle of a first love mm-hmm. sort of from beginning to end mm-hmm. and uh but uh is, yeah i'm yeah. wearing my call me by your name pants i don't know if you've noticed that today <laughs> in the final scene of the movie they have a flash forward to christmas uh, because they also go back to that villa for christmas and um and timothy chalamet is wearing a, a very sort of like new romantics 80s outfit with quite a, a quite a pair of trousers that rebecca <laughs> immediately went out and ordered online <laughs> i already as... had them thank you i have my finger on the pulse right now um everything in this movie is designed absolutely perfectly you know they there's been some articles about the people that they had to um uh, furnish the house the house itself the way that they're dressed mm-hmm. the music as you've heard in the trailer is uh there's Sufjan stevens yeah um yes yeah, so it has two original songs and one a remix of a, an existing song in the movie some pivotal and, 80s music and it came out today do you see this Sufjan stevens said that he was approached by the director luca guadagnino uh to actually not only appear in the song in the movie as like a bard performing, but originally they had discussed having him do, there was going to be a voiceover and they asked Sufian to do the adult Elio narrating. Oh yeah. That would have been interesting. That would have been interesting. But also I was just saying to uh, Christian friend of the show on Tuesday when I was showing it to him that I was like, thank God there's no voiceover in this movie because that would have made it so just tactless. Mm-hmm. Like the movie mm-hmm. is so nuanced and so subtle, um, scripted by the great James Ivory of Merchant Ivory. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, you can feel that originally intended for him to direct it, um, oh, but really? then they he couldn't get funding because he's he's 89, yeah. and so they he couldn't get funding for it because people just didn't trust that he could do it in, in his in his advanced age. But yeah, he wrote the screenplay, and I guess originally there was going to be a voiceover. But I mean, the movie is so much richer without with that with the silence that you get to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have been nice. To, I don't know. It would have been interesting. I would have liked to have heard what that sounded like, though. Because if you're going to do it, that's the voice to do it, right? That's yeah. sort of like um, kind of pained. Dro- yeah. Uh, I don't know what Sufian's speaking voice sounds like. Really, <laughs> he sounds like some like kid from the Bronx. Right. <laughs> so anyway, all of us shows up, right? And I'm like, oh my god, this guy's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I didn't know that's how Sufian talked. <laughs> he really pulls it back for the mm-hmm. for his songs. Uh, so yeah, so there was that. There is <clears throat> the score. 
this is not even really an original score to speak of. When I first watched it, because I'm, you know, I'm like a, you know, Philistine when it comes to classical music. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, because the only thing you hear in this movie other than Stufian's songs and sort of the cheesy 80s pop, both American and European that it plays, um, is the piano pieces, mm-hmm. which I loved. Um, and which to me, it sounded like an original score that was written to basically be, instead of a voiceover narration, we have this musical narration of adult Elio playing the piano and like narrating the emotional mm, um, mm-hmm. thread and arc of these scenes. And, um, and even though it turns out that all these, all these piano pieces are actually existing pieces of classical music, um, still clearly the way they are arranged in the movie, uh, is meant to, you know, to follow that emotional arc. And also we know that Elio is a, you know, is a piano player mm-hmm. and uh, transcribes his music. And so we can still picture him sort of choosing these pieces, almost curating a piano playlist um, to sort of like give us this arc of this great first love of his that, that transformed him. There's also like a really sweet scene there where he, um, he plays uh, a piece. Um, I want to say it's Bach, Bach. Yeah. On, the, on the guitar. And then he, and then uh, Oliver is really intrigued by it. And then he goes back and he does this thing where he plays the same piece in the style of like Chopin and all these other um, mm-hmm. uh, classical music. Like, pianists. A, like a little punk. Like a little punk. But it was, it was interesting to see like, you know, I feel like there's an implied power dynamic with the age difference, but like that was sort of, it's sort of like thrown off by, by things like moments like that where Oliver's like truly impressed um, by young Elio, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who has these advanced talents. The uh, Elio's father is played by Michael Stuhlberg. Mm, having who, a good year. Having a very good year. Also was in The Shape of Water. Uh, great role in that and some other things as well, I think. Um, but uh, coming off of, like last year, he was pretty forgettable in Arrival uh, as mm-hmm. like the, the one as villain. As Alien 2. <laughs> right, as Alien 2. <laughs> Um, but Michael Stolberg in this, so this is a movie that has, it keeps the dialogue to a minimum and so much of it is in, is in French or Italian and the dialogue feels almost like casual tossed off incidental dialogue for most of it. You're just like overhearing people talking. Um, but it all builds up to this shattering monologue mm-hmm. of such moving power given by Michael Stolberg at the end of the movie to Elio. And it is... It is just, it is, it is breathtaking. It is, it is so exquisitely performed by him. Um, this, this gives, though, I have a whole new appreciation for him. It's very rare that I have seen an actor in as many things as I've seen Stolberg in. And then a movie like this comes along where I will never look at him the same way. Like mm-hmm. I now have yeah. reappraised him completely. Um, because, you know, he kind of, you know, played a lot of his breakout role was in the Coen's single man. And he got cast mm-hmm. similarly in a lot of sort of nebbishy kinds of parts and, and uh, and you know, nerds and you know and, and and but this the character he plays here is such like a, he's he's vivacious and he is alive and he's sensual. You and- know what it reminded me of a bit, and I might get shit for this. Mm-hmm. But you know those times when Robin Williams could really turn it on mm-hmm. in that way oh where my he God. feels like you're, he breaks your heart. You're so right. Really? You're completely right. This would this would have been a Robin Williams performance. Oh my god! Yeah, Robin I was Williams. Right. Robin Williams would have won another Oscar for this. Right? He would have won another Oscar for this. Um, it made me wonder. At the end of the movie, they give they weirdly out of kind of out of the blue that it, to me at least dedicated to Bill Paxton, and that yeah. made me wonder if they actually were talking to him about playing that part. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, no, you're so right that Robin Williams would have, would have nailed it. Michael Stolberg nails it. Yes, and, absolutely. um, and he's more than likely going to get an Oscar nomination for this part. But um, it has that warmth and sincerity without being trite, mm-hmm. um, and a, and a fuzziness to yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, uh, it's really powerful. And if you, if you didn't resent this family already <laughs> by the end of it, 
<laughs> you will. Yes. And we should know, you know, it's very, uh, it's very tasteful, this movie. It's not, uh, this is not like a, a very sexually explicit film. It's actually gotten some shit from some gay cultural critics that like it should have been more explicit. Uh, that it should have, uh, you know, whenever, but when the time comes for Elio and Oscar to have like a love making montage, um, it we don't actually see any sex uh, happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see we see some oral sex in a few scenes, but we don't see any like intercourse. And so uh, some people feel like you know like it's it's important to to show you know gay sexuality um, so that it can you know have representation and so that it can balance out. The many, many, you know, the wildly lopsided imbalance of, like, straight sex scenes that sure. we've all watched. Um, so this movie doesn't give you that. This movie does give you another scene uh, that's uh, received a lot of chatter yeah. involving a peach. Yes. Um, and, uh, and and that is, uh, in this this movie premiered at Sundance way back in January, and in right away, that's all anyone was talking about. Big year for peaches. Big year for peaches. And, um, and so, you know, there's a scene uh, where Elio uh, masturbates using a peach and uh and you know it happens we all watch it <laughs> and um and uh and, and the, the thing to to know about that is that it was in the book this is based on a book it was in the book and luca the director wanted very very badly to take it out because he knew that it would be the only thing people talked about mm-hmm. and um but then he but he knew it meant a lot to the people who read the book and so he was like well i will try it myself and if it works, then I'll have to keep it in. But like if, it any good director. if it doesn't work, then thank God I can take it out. And he tried it and it worked. So he mm. was like, well, it works. And he went to Timothy Chalamet and was like, well, I tried it. And Timothy's like, yeah, I did too. Yeah, it works. <laughs> Everyone like from the crew Everyone, is like raising their hands. Everyone's. Yep, right. Yeah, yeah, so any given worked. moment during pre-production, the various men in the film were off masturbating into peaches. Um, your thoughts on the peach scene? Um, well, I, uh, I mean, my thoughts, I think about, I know that you had a very visceral reaction. Um, I had a very, I had two separate, very strong reactions. Yes. First, a very loud orgasm, which was very (laughs) off-putting for that press screen we were in. So again, our apologies to, uh, to the Delancey screening room for, uh, for that. (laughs) We do apologize. I I don't apologize. (laughs) You're welcome. You're like, how did they know? Oh god! Shame oh god! Me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it doesn't work right? when I try it. Right. Yeah. Is <laughs> <laughs> taking the pit out of the key? I don't know. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like as a reviewer, you should try it, right? <laughs> I mean, if the filmmakers do it, I feel like it's part of, you know, seriously engaging with the work. I'm trying to be a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very upset by the beginning of it because he just kind of like digs into it with his thumbs and he gets peach juice all over himself. And I just found it very sticky and awkward, um, which is dumb. But you're like, that's which, how is, I felt. You're like, which is why I hate sex. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with fruit. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I feel like at the end of so the end of it, so he's up in this the bell tower that your family's house has, sure. of course. Um, we all have this. And Oliver comes up and finds him. He had fallen asleep, and and he finds the peach. And Oliver quickly figures out what he did with it, and then he grabs the peach and he goes to eat it. And in this like really sexy moment of something that's super hot, and that but like, um, Elio is so embarrassed by what he's done, and like that's like a really good um, mm-hmm. moment of showing their difference in experience. 
um, that I thought was, and then and then Oliver eventually comforts right. him and you know it makes him feel better. But I thought that was like a really interesting way to show their their difference and like the difference that we kind of all go yeah. through. So what you're saying is that you connected with the post sex shame. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Look, I, believe I have a bunch of peaches there. <laughs> Yeah, like, what's, what's the saying? You got to break a few peaches to, uh, <laughs> but uh, but no. And it's it should be noted that in in the book Oliver does eat the peach, um, and so that's mm-hmm. one thing that they softened in the movie, um, because I guess I they that was great. I thought they, eating the they, peach was fantastic. They didn't want a full on like John Waters uh, like like shock scream moment from the audience, um, but uh, but yeah, they, they they show enough. It's still like sexy and tantalizing mm-hmm. him sort of teasing him with the peach. But then yeah, Elio does have this very emotional moment that. Ultimately, it's not even so much about the peach as it is about the fact that it's toward the end of, uh, of Oliver's stay. Mm-hmm, right. Um, yeah. And uh, and Elio is just feeling a lot of different feelings, trying to figure out what to do with himself now that this has happened and he's never going to be the same and this man's getting ready to leave. What are you giving this one? What a, what a dumb question. <laughs> Send it back. Um, I don't know. I didn't like it. Yeah. No, this is, this is a binge it. Uh, you know, it's one of the best movies of the year and it's going to be a major awards contender. And it's just so lovely. And, this is uh, a, a delight. I feel like if you're going to go see this movie, if you haven't seen it already, mm-hmm. you're going to go see it. I think you should make like a day of it. Like make reservations at a restaurant you really like. Stock up on peaches. <laughs> Look, can we just take it from a friend? Bring your own peach. <laughs> BYOP. <laughs> they don't have them there. No, Leave not it. Anymore. Yeah. Leave it. Don't bring it back with you. <laughs> Leave it in your, in your cup holder. Um, I lost so many. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it in Jason's cup holder. It's <laughs> an empty bag of popcorn and a pile of peaches. <laughs> peaches. Clean no, yourself up. But like make a day, like, you know, or like go to a fancy brunch and then have a couple of cocktails and then mm-hmm. go see an afternoon screening and then like mm-hmm. go go to the park or something. I feel like really make a day out of it because this movie mm-hmm. is so beautiful. You don't want to be like, oh, I was stuck in traffic and then I like got out <laughs> oh, yeah. and I rushed the movie and then I had to rush home. I feel yeah. like you should, you should make a part of it. Go to the spa. I don't know. Yeah, the movie has a very leisurely uh, energy to it. So I think it's good to be able to sort of like, yeah, have a leisurely day to watch it in so mm-hmm. that you can just like be um, synced up with it. Yeah, book an Italian dinner afterwards discuss yeah. it with friends have some wine um yeah. but definitely a binge it and uh don't cheat yourself on on the experience call me by your name is rated r for sexual content nudity and some language um, that brings us to movie number three which is darkest hour a thrilling and inspiring true story begins at the precipice of world war ii as within days of becoming prime minister of britain winston churchill must face one of his most turbulent and defining trials exploring a negotiated peace treaty with nazi germany or standing firm to fight for the ideals, liberty, and freedom of a nation. As the unstoppable Nazi forces roll across Western Europe and the threat of invasion is imminent, and with an unprepared public, a skeptical king, and his own party plotting against him, Churchill must withstand his darkest hour, rally a nation, and attempt to change the course of world history. We are in the preliminary stage of one of the greatest battles in history. Mr. Winston Churchill, you have an enormous task ahead of you. Winston lacks judgment. He's a bully. We may have to replace him. All our forces are in Dunkirk. The Germans are pushing us into the sea. You have the full weight of the world on your shoulders. Are you not afraid? Most terribly. Who's your favorite British Prime Minister? Uh, Tony Blair. Yeah, that's good. Safe choice. Safe choice. <laughs> I mean, I know he really was, you know, maybe a little too uh, cooperative with Bush during the uh, mm-hmm. Iraq War period. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, certainly the beginning of Tony Blair's time in office was uh, a time that 
people seem to cherish. And I base that entirely on reading the Bridget Jones books. <laughs> um, I was going to go with, um, oh, who was the prime minister in Love Actually? Oh, uh, Hugh Grant. Yeah, yeah Hugh yeah. Grant. It's so it was meant Neville to be a Chamberlain Tony Blair. or Hugh Grant. <laughs> right. I mean, who who were both notorious for dancing to the Pointer Sisters um, mm, around yeah. uh, around their office. Yeah. Um, I did not have the pleasure of seeing this uh, movie. Jason, uh, you have feelings about Gary Oldman, but you didn't. You couldn't even tell if he's in this movie or not because it doesn't look like him at all. Of course. Yeah. Because yeah. he plays the lamp. <laughs> yeah he I, yeah i'm not clear where he is in the movie um could be anyone could be anything he plays uh, every character in this movie that's, that's why they that's he's that's getting all the that's talks how, it's, it's he yeah he norbits it uh <laughs> <laughs> it's, gary oldman's, oh it's gary oldman's norbit moment i want to see i want to see this tracy jordan winston churchill uh academy award uh, yeah. i'm the danish girl moment but yeah it's please it's time, time for another danish girl moment i think uh, yeah, this is, you know, there have been a lot of times where, you know, we've had great actors who have con- donned considerable prosthetics to play real life people um, from, you know, Nicole Kidman I knew you were gonna go in there. the hours <laughs> to, you know, like John Hurt and the Elephant Man or, uh, you know, there's there, there's a lot. Um, but I have never like quite lost track of any recognizable part of a person. Mm-hmm. Quite like Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill in this movie. This is, this is Medea's World War Two. <laughs> it's 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 a uh, Medea takes Dunkirk. <laughs> uh, because uh, yet again, only like war references or other movies. Because this is also the third movie this year to deal with Dunkirk. Uh, after yeah, really their finest to do. and and Dunkirk, yes, twenty seventeen is the year of of that battle, finally becoming um, a thing that Americans know about. So that is a side effect of 2017 that we are all present for. Who knew? But yes. And I say this is someone like the first time that I became aware of Gary Oldman was in Bram Stoker's Dracula, mm-hmm. um, which is a movie that I was obsessed with when it came out when I was 10. No. Obsessed with Bram no. Stoker's Dracula. Shocked. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that tone is. Um, you <laughs> know, it was, it was a bunch Handsome. of fey men. It was a bunch of fey men. Handsome fey men. Is that a snipe at Richard E. Grant? Uh, a Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's not in that dummy. Exactly. <laughs> Thinking of interviewing the vampire. <laughs> uh, go on. <laughs> You're like, listen, we all love 10-year-old Kirsten Dunst, but we need to get past <laughs> oh, it eventually. <laughs> no, I was actually, it was Winona Ryder in, in Dracula, who I was especially obsessed with. Of like, course, that's fair. Yeah, it was like the early 90s, and I was really into like any sort of like dark, gothy female character, whether it be her or Wednesday Addams and Asylum movies or Darlene on Roseanne. Those were my those were my main three. Still are. Um, but and still are, true. Um, but Gary Oldman in that movie plays, you know, a variety of iterations of Dracula under all kinds of crazy makeup. And um, and so so I felt like in some ways this movie was like a coming home uh, for me mm-hmm. with Gary Oldman because I was like oh look he's unrecognizable again, um, but you know I have to say that it, it almost you lose him so completely in this transformation to Winston Churchill that like you you just don't even well I guess Charlize Theron a monster would be another person you could uh, right. draw draw toward but in Char- but for Charlize you know they just it was more similar to Nicole Kidman in the hours where they just did prosthetics on the face. You know, Charlize didn't, like, have padding or anything. She, like, you know, gained a little weight to play that part. Um, Gary Oldman is wearing, like, this full, like, Winston Churchill fat suit um, mm. and uh, and has all the power. It, it just feels almost, it feels almost farcical 
Uh, mm-hmm. Like to the point where it feels like a parody you would see in a movie about like Oscar movies. Ah, this uh, is a, he's norbiting. He is really norbiting. He's really norbiting. Um, and uh, and so I mean, like in you know, so it's almost like a double-edged sword how immersive the performance is. Because on the one hand, you're thinking like, wow, this is like one of the best historical performances I've ever seen. This is like he he no one has ever disappeared into a character like Gary Oldman's disappearing into that fat suit and those prosthetics. Um, and somewhere Eddie Murphy's like, oh, really? <laughs> no one's ever done that before. <laughs> but also, has anyone seen Gary Oldman? He has disappeared into that fat suit. No one has seen him for weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we, we've lost sight. We've lost sight of him. People talk a lot about movies that are like, give me an Oscar. Mm. And, um, and people have used that kind of um, you know, description to talk about a lot of movies that I've loved over the years. But this is the first time that I was watching this movie just being like, okay, Gary Oldman, like, we fucking get it. You want your Oscar. This movie is not much more or less than Gary Oldman wants an Oscar. And Gary Oldman should have an Oscar. He's a great actor. And it's insane that his first nomination in his career, which has you know, been going on for 30 years was for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy just mm. a few years ago, mm-hmm. which is a movie I didn't give a fuck about. Um, and, uh, you know, so, and this is another movie that, frankly, I don't give a fuck about. Uh, you know, I, I, I miss the wild Gary Oldman of yore. And I know mm. that in his personal life that he sort of had an evolution and that he was kind of like a wild, raging drunk in the 80s and 90s. And he kind of sobered up and has been playing a lot more sort of straightforward type parts since then. Um, whether it be, um, you know, Commissioner Gordon in, in mm. Nolan's Batman films or Tinker Taylor or this. Snooze fest. Yeah, exactly. I miss Sid and Nancy, Gary. I miss Immortal Beloved, Gary. I miss the professional, Gary. Um, Romeo is bleeding, Gary. Uh, you know, these, I, I miss, you know, it's, he's almost like he had an Angelina Jolie sort of transition where he, mm. you know, he, you know, had a personal transformation in his real life. And he went from playing these like wild wild loose cannon types to just being a lot more buttoned up and whatever he's still a great actor and he'll probably win best actor for this and i'll be fine with it how i mean how is this as a historical um drama like did you learn anything did you get insights into isn't winston churchill like kind of terrible I mean, he, it's, it seems like a real mixed bag. Uh, and, and frankly, I had a really tough time paying attention to this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did not hold my interest. Uh, it just, it, it's so stodgy and so like, it just hits a lot of sort of very familiar historical biopic mm-hmm. notes and makes you think of the King's speech. Mm-hmm. It takes place mm-hmm. in a similar era to the King's yeah. speech. It takes place in a similar era to like, um, you know, W.E., the, you know, there's the, the Wallace Simpson is mentioned oh, in, right. in this movie as well as, you know, she was in the King's I mean, she speech. caused quite a stir. Yes. And then, you know, had her own Madonna movie, W.E. But, um, you know, so it just feels like, okay, well, this is just another dimension of that. And, you know, one thing it does have going for it is the timeline is very compressed. It takes place entirely in May 1940 um, when, you know, I guess within, you know, shortly after becoming the prime minister, Winston Churchill had, you know, and the Third Reich was like on the on their front at their front step of the UK and then he had to um, figure out what to do very, very quickly about this, this, you know, historic situation and, you know, and it ends with, um, with Dunkirk. Hmm. So, you know, so it's definitely, you know, timeline wise, it's smart to do that thing that we like when it just focuses on a one specific moment from this, this, you know, historical figure's life. But I just, I was just bored. I was. I mean, I feel like a cradle of the grave would have been good here because then Gary Oldman could have played a baby. Mm, that's true. Goo goo gaga. <laughs> uh, that would have been fun to watch. Um, so you know, this, this, it's a very handsome, 
uh, beautifully mounted historical piece. It's it's shot with that kind of muted kind of tint to it, um, common to films set in London about the Great War or about World War II rather. Um, you know, there's fine supporting performances. Kristen Scott Thomas plays his wife. Always a treat to see her. Lily James plays his secretary, who he's terrible to, but they you know get past that. Um, Ben Mendelsohn, great actor, fine work here. But I guess I just, there was just nothing about it that like woke me up. Mm-hmm, you know, it mm-hmm. just felt like, okay, yeah, this is of a piece with like a, a gazillion other historical biopics. It's directed by Joe Wright. Um, Joe Wright has kind of a, I would say a generally above average track record as a director. He's done Atonement. He did Kira Knightley's Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. He did Hannah with Saoirse Ronan. He did Kira Knightley's Anna Karenina. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. That's one with Jude Law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I like that. Yeah. So he's, you know, so he's, 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 he's mainly come through with some, some decent stuff. Oh, he also, I think his last movie, was his last movie that Peter Pan? Uh, I don't know. He did, his last movie was terrible. Ludicrous music videos. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. You know, the huge, um, the things you expect from, from your British Keira Knightley collaborators. So, but yeah, this is, I just wasn't, it did not make me care. And, uh, and Gary Oldman vanishes at the point where it's hard to even like enjoy the performance because you're like, I guess that's, I'll just have to take your word for it that that's him under there because, you know, there's literally not, neither, neither in voice nor appearance does it at any point remind you of that. So that's a, a huge, uh, triumph, but also kind of a weird setback in a way for the audience. Uh, it seems like it would be really appreciated by someone who thinks that a, a performance of the year would go to, um, someone who was dressed as a uh, planet of the Apes. <laughs> you know uh and rebecca's referring to the fact that we in the san francisco film critics circle voted to give our best actor prize this year to andy circus for war of the planet of the apes which is a thing that i had no part in <laughs> uh <laughs> i did not vote for him but uh that did happen uh so but yeah and, the, and, and it was there was a brief outcry in the room that it should have gone to gary oldman but he wasn't even in the top two uh, but either way, uh, this movie, there's, there, I think if you're out there and you think you'll like this movie, you will like it. Uh, mm-hmm. If you like watch a trailer and you're like, yes, <laughs> that's exactly. You have a dad yeah. Yeah. or a grandpa. <laughs> this is definitely the, like, the take your dad to the movies movie mm-hmm. um, of, of award season. Um, but for me, it did. It really didn't do much. Send it back? No, it's a consume because it's well done. Um, you know, it's, so it's, it's not a send it back because it's still totally competent. And, uh, and and well-acted and well-made and all that stuff. It just, for me personally, was a complete snooze. It's rated PG-13 for some thematic material. And that brings us to our fourth movie of the week, Wonder Wheel. Four people's lives intertwine amid the hustle and bustle of a Coney Island amusement park in the 1950s. Ginny, an emotional, volatile former actress now working as a waitress in a clam house. Humpty, Gina's rough-hewn carousel operator husband. Mickey, a handsome young lifeguard who dreams of becoming a playwright, and Carolina, Humpty's long-estranged daughter, who is now hiding out from gangsters at her father's apartment. Coney Island, 1950s. The beach, the boardwalk. I work here on Bay 7. Enter Carolina. Excuse me? Do you know if Jenny's here? I'm Jenny. I'm Humpty's daughter. Here's his wife. Is he gonna be surprised? I'm marked. That's what you get when you marry a gangster. Uh, I gotta have a drink. No, Humpty, you've been good. Who keeps letting this happen? What's this? Who keeps letting Woody Allen make movies? Uh, Amazon, at this point. 
How? Oh, I guess there was the Rowan Farrow article about how he has once again managed to escape this situation unscathed. Yeah, I'm curious if after this, if there will be consequences. We recently reviewed I Love You, Daddy, which is a reference to Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, and watched it after we heard about Louis C.K. And that was a whole thing. Right. So are you saying that this movie has a, a similar feel to it? No, 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 not at all. Um, it's definitely, it has no overlap whatsoever. There's none of the I Love You, Daddy syndrome in this. It's, um, there's no, um, no... There's no predatory behavior. There's no, like, accidental uh, allusions to... Yeah. No, no. Um, no, because, uh, yeah, the, the sort of... The, the romantic male lead in this film is played by Justin Timberlake. And uh, so he plays the Woody in, uh, in this movie. Oh. Yells. Which is a which is a hoot, let me tell you. Uh, so, but no. So uh, this movie is Woody doing drama. Uh, mm. So, which which normally he has a pretty good track record with, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. like Blue Jasmine, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, mm-hmm. Match Point. Uh, you know these dramas that he's been doing with 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 greater uh, frequency over the last decade or so have been a lot of his best work, and it's his comedies that have been kind of phoned in and forgettable. Um. You know, but to paraphrase uh, Roger Ebert, you know, Woody Allen's phoned it in a lot of times, but this is the first time that I wanted to hang up. Oh, it was. Uh, this is this is this is a terrible movie. This is terrible. Uh, I was I was shocked, shocked. And the funny thing is that it almost sort of like sets it up to be bad in a way because it's so the movie's narrated by Justin Timberlake. <laughs> and uh, which again, I would just always want to need to just giggle at the Timberlake Woody Allen collaboration that we that have really here before sucks. us. I feel like Justin Timberlake has such a, a potential in comedy. He's so good on Saturday Night Live when he's a oh, guest. Yeah. Um, it's a yeah. shame. And he's, he does no, he's, good he's comedic uh, yeah. voice acting and trolls. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's been good in other movies too, like yeah, live yeah. action, social network. Yeah. Um, friends with benefits. You know, he's a perfectly charming actor and he's very charming in this too. He's just very miscast mm-hmm. um, because his character is a, is a, is a Coney Island lifeguard uh, who is also a poet and aspiring playwright. Uh, and as he's setting what up... What world does Woody Allen live in that th- this person exists? It's his own weird nostalgia fantasy. Uh, so, uh, so, so he is an aspiring playwright and he's sort of narrating the story. And at the beginning, as the camera... Um, you know, tracks in on him sitting in his lifeguard chair against this 50s tableau. And he's sort of introducing the story. It's one of those Woody Allen stories where you have like the sort of narrator who's sort of like telling you what's happening throughout. And um, and so and he basically is saying like he's like, I love melodrama. And, you know, so what follows, you know, might be have some melodramatic flourishes and, uh, and so I'm like, so wait, are we supposed to understand that the reason this movie is so terrible is that it's being told to us by a terrible playwright? <laughs> that was written by a terrible writer. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, a writer who obviously has made a lot of great stuff, but uh, this is not one of those great things. And it's coming off the Amazon show, which I just watched last night and is a fucking wreck. It's yeah. unbelievably bad. I don't know if maybe, I don't know if things are, if it's just Woody Allen, you know, just getting older and not, you know, and, and, or if maybe all of the, the resurgence of the allegations from his daughter uh, have, you know, have, have been taking their toll. Uh, I don't on him know. or on us? 
well, on, on all of us, I guess, but in this situation on him, mm-hmm. um, you know, and meaning that he's not able to, you know, sort of create the way that he did before because now he's very aware of this, like, pretty giant, constantly growing public resentment against him. Um, and uh, so, but either way, this is, this is, this is wretched. So, uh, so Kate Winslet plays um, a waitress uh, in Coney Island who lives right there in the middle of the park in some sort of like, uh, some sort of like, uh, you know, flop house apartment with her husband who's played by Jim Belushi, who's actually good. And, uh, and then uh, this, this, this sort of estranged adult daughter of Jim Belushi's shows up played by Juno Temple for once not playing a prostitute. Good for you, Juno. And uh, because God knows she's been typecast over the years. Although she's still playing a very vulnerable sort of woman who's preyed upon by everyone. Mm. And uh, so that's, that pieces of it is still there. So, uh, yeah, so it sort of like rocks the house whenever this daughter shows up. And then Kate Winslet has a sort of a meet-cute with Justin Timberlake, um, who, uh, you know, they sort of have a, 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 they strike a match together. And then when, you know, he's talking about being a playwright and she's like, oh, well, you know, I wanted to be an actress. And he's like, oh, well, you should read my play. And then they start to have this thing of like, oh, they have it. They, they start an affair. And, um, and you know, she's thinking that maybe this can be the thing that leads to her be- getting to reclaim her dream that she lost, become an actress. The whole thing is just, it hits a lot of, of, of melodrama cliches mm. in a not very clever way. So it's not like they're like turning them on their head. It just like, just, it just it just calmly like walks with each one and just like picks it up and keeps going. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so she's this tragic Tennessee Williams type character, you know, fading beauty, you know, lost touch with her glory days, wants to reclaim them. Then a younger woman shows up and threatens her and this newfound happiness that she thought that she'd found for herself. And then, you know, she'll do something terrible to, you know, try to hold on to that happiness. Uh, but it is, uh, it, it gives Justin Timberlake the chance to say a lot of things like, oh, you gotta read Eugene O'Neill. Uh, which is, uh, <sighs> which is, uh, which is, which is cute. Well, and I will say this for Justin Timberlake in this. God damn, does he look good. He oh, yeah? is yeah. wearing, he wears a lot of, most of his wardrobe is like old timey skin tight bathing suits. So most of the movie is him sitting there wearing one of those like one piece old timey dude suits with like the short, the high shorts and he is legs for days in this movie. Legs for days. They have him so tan, so bronzed, uh, and uh, and he, oh, God, he looks. Okay, let's. Yeah. Oh, Wait, where'd you get I, peach I was, from? What I the was, fuck? <laughs> where did that even come from? I didn't see you. God damn it! Inappropriate. <laughs> Sorry. Let me just uh, take the pit out and toss it. Um, I'm a fucking Foley guy over here. So, <laughs> give me your helicopter. <laughs> oh, the horses are running. The horses are running. Oh, oh fuck yeah! So he looks great, but he also um, acting wise, it feels like he's like gradually turning into Neil Patrick Harris. Weirdly, oh, I can see that. Yeah, I he, can see that because he has like he does a, a lot of like bug eyed forehead acting. In this mm-hmm, movie, mm-hmm. where like, he keeps his eyes he open. He picked that up on trolls. He, he keeps them open very wide, and his forehead is, like, very pronounced. And he sort of, like, leads with his forehead uh, mm. in all of his scenes. Despite, I mean, he still looks great doing that somehow, because he's Justin Timberlake. Uh, Kate Winslet is, um, you know, I 
what is with her American accent? She has mm. never figured out a way to talk in an American accent that doesn't just sound like this weird, flat, ugly sound. Well, I mean, she's supposed to be playing someone from Coney Island, right? Well, still, but you would think that would give her like a way out. Right. Um, well, yeah. You know, put, like, oh. play a little accent you can play with, a little, you know, put a little... Uh, you know, twank on it, but no, uh, she does not. Um, and, and, there, and there's there's a little bit of it, but mainly it's just that same ghastly American accent she's been doing since Titanic. Mm. Um, so, and she's, you know, I don't know. She's fine. The whole thing has a very sort of like theatrical heightened kind of like kitchen sink opera kind of vibe to it. Um, but, it, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, you know, that you feel so removed, you know, the sort of like the artifice of the storytelling keeps you at such a remove from it. And Justin Timberlake, you know, his, his voice just is not the best at saying Woody Allen's dialogue. He just never. This is the same problem you have with Miley Cyrus on that TV show. (laughs) It doesn't work. Yeah. There's, I mean, the whole movie is unconvincing, but Timberlake in particular is very unconvincing. It's like, instead of trying to go with, with casting that makes sense. It's like they're trying to, he's trying to like challenge himself by getting, trying to make um, this like really odd fit work. Um, yeah. Wait, isn't Selena Gomez in this? No. What, is she in something with him? Maybe something she, he has coming out. Oh my God, he has another one coming well, out? Well, you know, he makes a movie every year. Jesus fucking Christ. Still yeah. though, we're not stopping that. No. It's, we're doing, we're doing it in 2018. Apparently. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's like, you're, it's like you're trying to make it work and it does not, and it just, it just stopped working. The thing that's especially sad about, um, and, and Woody Allen, you know, he's he's in a lot of his old obsessions here. You know, we have, you know, a, 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 well, not so much, you know, the, the songs are the usual mm-hmm. Woody Allen sort of like ragtimey songs. But, you know, we have obsessions with, with gangsters. He has, he's, oh, he, yeah. he's so obsessed with gangsters, um, whether it be Bullets or Broadway or this, um, you know, and, you know, Match Point and Crimes of Misdemeanor, you know. It, yeah, the last one. Yeah, the um, last one. Cafe Society, uh, you know, so once again, we have the gangster thing here, and he just loves nothing more than, like, an old-timey gangster, um, and, uh, you know, he loves stories about, like, working-class people with showbiz ambition, uh, and, you know, so that that's all the usual stuff, and it's, it's you know, he's done it better before. Uh, the thing that's almost um, bittersweet about his last few films is that he's only recently started collaborating with the cinematographer Vittorio Storaro who is one of the all-time greatest cinematographers. He worked with Bertolucci on a lot of movies. Oh, I remember that in the movie that they did with, uh, he did, oh, it was this, it was this last one. Um, yeah, he did Cafe, Cafe Society, Society when they well. were doing the, when they were still on the West Coast yeah. uh, beach time. Yeah. That was gorgeous. That yeah. stuck with me. Yeah. Those he, scenes are beautiful. The, his work on this movie is breathtaking. And not just about Justin Timberlake. And not just JT. Like, I mean, like, Vittorio Storaro lighting Justin Timberlake is a dream. Um, but no, just in general, just, I mean, every shot is so gorgeous. Um, the difficult thing about Vittorio Storaro though, um, is that he, as I mentioned, was Bertolucci cinematographer and he was a cinematographer on Last Tango in Paris. Oh no. And it was he who conspired with no. Bertolucci and Brando to rape Maria Schneider on camera or to sexually assault her on camera without her knowledge or consent. Uh, so to have Woody Allen collaborating with Vittorio Storaro is uh is is no uh is is feels you know i guess in some ways sadly kind of appropriate and not surprising um and uh so yeah that's just one more one more sticky thing um that one has to be aware of covered timberlake and butter (laughs) they got him so golden that's that's what that glow was so what are you giving this one 
this is a send it back for yeah. me. This is just, I mean, you know, Rebecca and I did talk about whether we should continue to review Woody Allen movies. And, um, you know, we'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on that kind of question. You know, and we obviously we reviewed the Louis C.K. movie because that was kind of an extenuating circumstance where, you know, we wanted to let you guys all know what happened in it. But now apparently it's leaked online. So now it's kind of available. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. And then also Louis C.K. did buy the rights back from The Orchard. Uh, so he probably has something in mind about, you know, giving the movie away or something, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't have any answers on that one. The Woody Allen thing, um, you know, it feels like it's, it's something where there've been no, there've been no new revelations. There've been no new developments in like a really long time, but it's something that we're all always still talking about because there's been no, like, he denies it. And I mean, like, what and, other revelations do you need? Well, what I'm, well, I guess what I mean, like, as opposed to, I'm not saying it to be like, in, to make it sound like his is better. Um, I just mean that, like, it's just one of those things where, like, even Roman Polanski recently had a new allegation come out. Um, with Woody Allen, we've had the same one for like 30 years. That and, he married his daughter. Well, no, not that one. And again, like, that, that one, I, mm. that one, I'm not, I have no, I'm not going to, like, pass judgment on, on that situation. It's, mm. it's, it's, you know, mm. that it's, it's the stuff with Dylan, you know, his daughter Dylan and, I mean, what, and her, I, and her allegation. Okay. Fair. Um, you know, so that is, so it's this weird thing where it's just, it's always going to be. And if Frank Sinatra was still alive, this guy would be dead. Oh yeah. Uh, and maybe he could actually claim Ronan as his son, which we all know is the case. Come on. But, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's tough. And, you know, we want to hear your thoughts on if you think we should, what we should do in cases like this, where it's films from, you know, from accused, uh, uh, rapists, sexual assaulters. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, like, like, like Army Hammer talked about in his since retracted comments comparing Casey Affleck to, um, to Nate Parker. Right. Um, so it's getting a send it back. Uh, it's rated PG-13 for thematic content, including some sexuality, language, and smoking. That's it. It's been a long one. Thanks for sticking it out. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Binge. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes if you're an Apple iPhone user. And if you're on Android, we have Stitcher, there's SoundCloud, there are Pocket Cast. There's all sorts of things you can use. Um, check us out at TheBinge.us. Jason, you're on Twitter at... Excess Baggage. I'm at Fight Balance. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There, there goes, goes The, the Binge. binge.